Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm pleased to announce that Airlines Confidential won't be shutting down this week. And Ben Baldanza, you may be the only one in Washington, D.C. that isn't shutting down. We're recording this a few days before the end of the government's fiscal year on September 30th. And without some kind of budget deal in Washington, the government will be shutting down. Be reassured, listeners, we are here for you. I'm here, Scott, and I'm not shutting down. I'm not shutting up, and I'm not shutting out. I wish my football team had a shutdown offensive line and cornerback. <laughs> and I do hope the government doesn't shut down either. We're going to talk today to a stand-up guy who's also not shutting down. Chris Sloan. As regular listeners know, Chris visits from time to time on Airlines Confidential, always with interesting stories. And this one is really fascinating. Chris is going to give us an education on Braniff Airways, an iconic airline still loved by many. It's an interesting lesson. Braniff pioneered many things, but it also showed how quickly an airline can collapse and shut down. I guess it's appropriate we talk about a shutdown airline in a week when all the attention is on a government shutdown. Yeah, there's never a good shutdown, Braniff or otherwise. Ben, if there is a government shutdown, it likely will be really bad for aviation and travel. We've seen that in the past, and we heard that this past week from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. He testified on Capitol Hill that a shutdown would set back Federal Aviation Administration hiring at just the wrong time. The shutdown would only affect non-essential personnel, so air traffic controllers will still be on the job. Same for TSA, for Customs and Border Protection. But the FAA's hiring and training will take a vacation. The agency is short 3,000 air traffic controllers. 2,600 are in training, the FAA says. Slowing up hiring and training should outrage travelers and airline workers. Let your senators and representatives know. It's worth noting that typically the government pays back wages, so those who aren't showing up for work under orders not to show up for work will still get paid. Overall, the U.S. Travel Association estimates that a shutdown will cost the travel economy about $140 million per day. Trips will be canceled, national parks and museums will close, lines will be longer, Wait times for passport renewals, visas, global entry applications, and more will get longer. As one whose passport is sitting in a government office somewhere waiting for renewal, I'll be counting the days. It's worth noting that the government shutdown in December 2018 and January 2019 ended quickly after the FAA found itself short of air traffic controllers in New York and shut down flights to LaGuardia. That sparked enough outrage, happened really fast, as I recall, to get lawmakers to agree to a deal. And to think, this shutdown will start already with a shortage of air traffic controllers in New York. At the same hearing, Secretary Buttigieg finally said what we have all known and many of us have experienced this year. Staffing at the New York Terminal Radar Approach Control Facility is, in the Secretary's word, unacceptable. Really. 
The FAA admitted staffing at that very crucial facility is only at 54% of what it should be. The Department of Transportation's Inspector General found that the New York TRACON has only eight supervisors. It's supposed to have 30. We've talked about this before. The critical shortages extend across the country. The Inspector General found that three-quarters of all the FAA's critical facilities are staffed below the agency's 85% level. Airlines have had to cancel and cut flights through the fall. Delays were much higher than they should have been this past summer. And yes, Mr. Secretary, it is unacceptable. What's missing from that statement is that you are in charge. You're the one who needs to lead the fix and make it acceptable but it often seems like you've had your own shutdown on addressing aviation problems. Unacceptable, Ben, what do you think? I know JetBlue, the only New York-based airline, has suffered quite a bit because of this unacceptable situation. I'm sure as a JetBlue board member, you're concerned. I'm concerned about the whole industry, Scott. This is unacceptable, and it's not only for the airline business either. It could affect so many things if the government is shut down. Passports, like you said, for travel, but also VA hospitals, other things for vets, retirees, all the people who count on work they get through the government. So it seems to me that some sort of bipartisan plan that include things the Democrats really want and the Republicans really want could come together to fix this right now. In much better news, Scott, Southwest Airlines Chief Executive Bob Jordan went to Denver, the center of that airline's meltdown, last winter to tell reporters and customers that Southwest is much better prepared this year. Let's hope so. Winter is always tough on airlines, and it does take a lot of preparation. We'll see if Southwest really is ready, but we know they've been investing a lot. They did do a much better job this summer. So our fingers are crossed for them and the whole industry this winter. And for Bob Jordan, too. This is really a test of Bob Jordan's leadership. They better get it right uh, or people are going to start saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe somebody else needs to try and fix this. And Ben, here's the biggest story of the past week in travel. New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote about the cost of his dinner at Newark Airport on X, formerly known as Twitter. Brooks tweeted, or do we call it X'd now? Brooks sent out a photo of his cheeseburger, fries, and drink and said, quote, this meal just cost me $78 at Newark Airport. This is why Americans think the economy is terrible. A $78 airport cheeseburger. Hmm. Well, the restaurant, it's called 1911 Smokehouse Barbecue. It's in Terminal A at Newark. It didn't stomach that very well. The restaurant responded that almost 80% of Brooks's bill was alcohol. That's basically a $16 cheeseburger and fries plus $62 in scotch or whatever Brooks was drinking. And certainly not one to miss a marketing opportunity, the restaurant posted a new cheeseburger special called the D. Brooks. That's a burger, fries, and a double shot of whiskey for $17.78. Brooks and the New York Times haven't responded, at least by the time we were recording the show. The internet exploded, of course, with more than 34 million people viewing Brooks' economic pot shot, according to the Washington Post. Celebrities jumped in on this new Karen. Even Bruce Springsteen tweeted himself in front of a foot-long hot dog saying, this meal just cost me $78 at Newark Airport. Airport food prices have long been an issue for travelers. 
Many airport operators, including the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which runs Newark, have required street pricing or street pricing plus 10%. Yes, you may pay $5 for a bottle of water. Street pricing is not always relief for travelers. Vendors go out and find the most expensive convenience store and call that street pricing. I've found anecdotally that prices for food and beverage are higher at big stadiums these days than at airports. And there are similarities. Just like the team taking a cut of concession sales at the stadium, airports often take a cut. Airport real estate is expensive for vendors, and it's expensive to operate in the airport environment where employees have to be badged with background checks, supplies can't be just dropped off at the loading dock, and customers are always in a hurry. I'd add that I, for one, am glad that there are good burgers to be had at airports and good whiskey, too. The days of the three-day-old hot dog on warming rollers is gone at airports. They have really upped their game, and yes, it costs more. If Brooks was really concerned about his wallet, there's a Jersey Mike's nearby in Terminal A. I just don't think expensive whiskey is why Americans think the economy is terrible. Never a dull moment at Newark, right, Ben? At least it was a hamburger and not a bologna sandwich, or in the case of Washington government, a plate of pulled pork. That's funny, Scott. I love this story. When I first saw it, the headline was $78 at Newark Airport for lunch with a question mark. And I'm saying, what did this guy have for lunch? And then I read the story, and I thought, that's the state of media today. We take the sensational piece of it and talk about it, but ignore all the whiskey or the scotch (laughs) or whatever. But I applaud the restaurant for being proactive and saying, look, let's set the record straight and then having some fun with it by offering a real nice special. So kudos to them for saying, hey, don't stop coming here. It's not us. Great (laughs) job by them. Well, it looked like a good burger, and I'd certainly stop by next time I go through Newark. But when I saw the D. Brooks special for 1788 with two shots of whiskey, I thought, man, that is a Ben Baldanza special right there. He took a page right out of your marketing book. (laughs) (laughs) I know it is great. I don't know if it would make me take the train from Terminal C if I were connecting there. But if I'm in Terminal A, count me there. Yeah, yeah. And Terminal A just got rebuilt and and reopened. So there's a lot of new vendors there. Uh, This one's a local Trenton vendor um, and, you know, a real family business. Um, And, Honestly, I'd much rather see them there, even if the burgers are $16, than than another McDonald's at the airport. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support and nourishment of our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we want to thank Dewhop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duop is a travel technology provider, enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lowering their costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duop works with their airline partners 
and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P dot com. We are excited to be joined by our roving correspondent, Chris Sloan. Chris is a, a accomplished aviation journalist and TV producer and former student, once upon a time, of Ben Baldanza and a general aviation uh, nerd. Uh, so, Chris, it's, uh, it's a great to have you back on the show. You recently did a really interesting thing. You went to a Braniff employee reunion and got a very rare look at Braniff archives. I know Braniff is very special to you and to many in aviation since it was such a colorful, fun airline that was quite foundational before and after deregulation. So tell us about your Braniff passion and and connections to that airline. Well, I'm really glad to be here, and uh, I'll even use a a Braniff tagline, so I'm glad to be here and that I got here in flying colors. Um, (laughs) Braniff is very special to me on a number of levels. I mean, I'm originally from Oklahoma, and Braniff was founded in Oklahoma. It was actually the first service was Oklahoma to Tulsa, and the brothers Paul and Tom Braniff were from Oklahoma City, and believe it or not, this many years later, that's actually where the headquarters for the company uh, officially is and remains. Uh, when I was growing up in Oklahoma, uh, most of my family was in New York and South Florida. So we, Braniff was our shuttle. That's what uh, winged our way to the tropics or the big city. And uh, Braniff represented, you know, kind of escaping from the uh, from uh, Oklahoma. Not that Oklahoma is a bad place. It's a great place. But, um, and, you know, it was always an adventure because, you know, the airplanes were like jelly beans in the sky, you know, brightly decorated colors and, and, uh, you know, it just had a lot of flair, and it really is the company that instilled my interest in aviation. And then thirdly, um, which is kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but Braniff uniquely uh, commissioned two aircraft to be painted by uh, the artist Alexander Calder, and they were true masterpiece works of art. In fact, the design was so unique and different uh, that they were considered the most uh, viewed pieces of masterpiece art in the world and history because they were flying airplanes. And we were so enamored by one in particular, which was one that was commissioned for the spirit of 76th of nation's bicentennial that we named our son, uh, one of our sons, Calder, uh, Calder Jacob Sloan was his name. He's since passed, uh, sadly. Um, but uh, he was named after uh, that airplane and uh, and really inspired by Braniff. And that was completely my wife's idea. So Braniff on many, many levels is very personal to me and, um, and I'm really excited to talk about them. And a much better name than DC-9, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, we named our dogs Pratt and Whitney, so I guess we followed it up. <laughs> That's great. Well, why did Braniff go bankrupt and shut down in 1982? I was in college then, and my recollection is that it was a combination of high fuel prices and getting stumped by American, which moved to Dallas after deregulation and started a hub we all know and love now. Yeah, I mean, that's really uh, a lot of it. I mean, Braniff was a unique company. And, um, you know, I guess backing up, you know, understanding a bit of what their network looked like at the time, but they were very unique in that they were ahead of their time. I mean, they really pioneered the hub and spoke system. Dallas was, DFW was their main hub. Dallas Love was their headquarters. And uh, they operated basically uh, North America, uh, hubbing very much around Dallas and a little bit in Minneapolis and Kansas City. And then they had a massive franchise in Latin America, uh, which uh, later became uh, Eastern Airlines and then American Airlines, uh, Latin American franchise. And they also had, uh, you know, a very famous route to Hawaii. So this is a, a tale, a bit of an airline that was like Icarus that flew too close to the sun. I mean, they were had an illustrious history. They were very, very high profile which we can get into a little bit later, 
that really belied the size. It actually was not that massive a company. It was only at its peak about a 6% market share uh, prior to deregulation. So when deregulation happened in 1978, like many airlines, they were not necessarily in favor of it, but they realized, and this story will sound familiar, is that they had to achieve scale and relevance or they weren't going to succeed. So nearly overnight, um, they made it when the CAB uh, basically was going away, they showed up on the morning of for route dockets with an immense amount of new routes um, and um, incredible amounts of expansion. Um, and that they, they believe we have to grow fast or die. And even that day, I don't exactly remember what month it was on the timetable, they inaugurated like a record number of new stations and routes in one day. And so at the same time, they acquired massive amounts of equipment, massive amounts of debt. And then they not only, this not only happened domestically, but at the same time in 1978, they did things like begin massive expansion into Europe, flying to Brussels and Amsterdam and Germany, in addition to where they'd only had one route to London. And uh, then they found themselves flying to Asia, to Singapore and Guam. Uh, they did not, you know, why they were trying to get service to more mainstream uh, destinations like Japan. And at the same time, ordering 747s. And, uh, and then on top of that, they operated not subsonically, but they had an interchange with uh, British Airways and Air France or the Concorde. So they became extremely ambitious. And as you rightly point out, Ben, at the same time, American, you know, very much went into the, the heart of Braniff and relocated corporate headquarters and built uh, in direct competition the DFW hub and commenced a price war. And also, you know, many, uh, there was a predatory pricing element and an antitrust uh, war that went on there uh, that came out of uh, a conversation uh, between Robert Crandall and the CEO of Braniff at the time. Uh, and then not only do you have the competitive forces, but at the same time, the economy went south rapidly. You had a massive increase in the price of fuel. You had inflation rates in that recession went to, you know, 20 percent. Braniff had all this debt. And at the same time, you know, they had always had such this was an airline that had for its entire existence been amazingly profitable always profitable, in fact, ridiculously profitable with a very strong credit rating and in very, very short order, in roughly three short years, three short years, they went from being this absurdly profitable trend-setting airline to being the first major U.S. carrier, not only to go into bankruptcy, but to completely stop and eliminate uh, operations, which happened, uh, and I remember the day where I was in May 12th, I believe, 1982, and they stopped completely, and it took them a full year to reorganize. It wasn't just a Chapter 11 where they came back uh, or continued. It ceased operations, and that was a, uh, a very, very dramatic thing, and, you know, that had not happened before in this country, and then, you know, obviously, we had Pan Am and Eastern uh, follow suit, so Braniff, you know, resurrected itself. Uh, in 1984 through 1989, but a very, very different brand uh, uh, and a very different mission, much more of a business-oriented uh, carrier that was based originally out of Dallas and then really hubbed at Kansas City and Orlando. It was re reformed by the Pritzker family-owned Marriott, um, you know, never really found its footing. And then it, that, that second iteration went bankrupt in 89. Uh, uniquely, though, they were the first airline to in the U.S. to operate. They literally took delivery of the Airbus A320s, but never really operated them or maybe for like a week. And then a third iteration, the final iteration, uh, lasted, I believe, around 1992 to 1990-92, and it was a pale version of its former self. So uh, it is an airline that um, even really the original brand of the one that Everybody remembers has been gone from the skies of 41 years, but like Pan Am in that respect, it still has an immense importance in the industry and a massive following, not only among people who work there and flew it, but also a whole new generation. And so uh, I can wax on forever about this company, but it truly, truly was groundbreaking, innovative and very, very special. That's a fascinating account of the of the history, Chris. And Braniff was, you know, those those orange planes and those 747s, 727s they were flying, they had 
enormous market presence, as you point out, with with just six percent of, of market share. And that that well-loved name with uh, all those attempts to to recreate it. Why do you think Braniff was so popular? Well, Braniff was really an interesting company. Uh, you know, as I said, it started in Oklahoma and it was a kind of a plucky upstart, you know, from the early, almost literally post-barnstorming days of aviation. And then, you know, only 20 years in existence, it decides to challenge Pan Am and, and then eventually bought us a, uh, one of their subsidiaries, Panagra, and became uh, literally 1948, launched a massive Latin American franchise. So that was very, very bold and ambitious when most carriers in the United States were pretty much either, with the exception of Pan Am, were pretty domestic. And so that was audacious. And then, but other than that, it was a pretty conservative airline. It was, uh, you know, uh, you know, the branding, the look, it, it, it had a very similar appearance to most carriers of that age, which was almost like militaristic, um, very, very, you know, staid and kind of conservative. And what really changed uh, Braniff and changed the industry was their new CEO, Harding Lawrence, came in and uh, with the help of Merrick, well, not really with the help, I mean, hired an ad agency where the creative was helmed by Mary Wells. And this was back in the Mad Men days of Madison Avenue. It was all men and very, you know, kind of, uh, you know, advertising was kind of, you know, conservative in itself. And Braniff, under Mary Wells and Harding Lawrence, bought sex appeal and panache and style mm -hmm. to the airline industry and also really the consumer marketing that just hadn't been seen before. And so they hired artists and designers and, you know, Pucci and Alexander Gerard and to create a to give the airline this sex appeal. So all the planes were painted in different colors like purple and lavender and blue and green. And the flight attendants wore these high fashion uniforms and literally would do things like air stripping where they'd have five levels of clothes and they'd play, you know, very suggestive music in the aisle and serve these elaborate meals and cocktails. And they bought a theatrical sense to the flight. And uh, they, you know, hired Alexander Calder to design, you know, kind of the original logo jets, except they were true masterpieces of art. So they had this, you know, the idea of the campaign was called the end of the plane plane and their level of sophistication was, you know, it was very first class and they would carve Chateaubriand and caviar and the customer experience was, you know, it was just bigger than life. And and this was a kind of a hometown Texas uh, conservative company that all of a sudden, you know, Texas and the Dallas and the oil and that, that that era, you know, they just bought glamour to the skies. And at the same time, they did very, very innovative things that, you know, from a, like we talked about the a standardized fleet. I mean, the domestic fleet was entirely 727s towards the end there for the last 10 years. They flew a, a single 747, and it was the highest utilized 747 in the world. And all it did was fly back and forth between Spad Albert, was the most probably the most famous uh, airliner single of it in the U.S. Just every day between Dallas, Fort Worth, and Honolulu. And then they uh, they were also the only U.S. airline to operate Concorde, which they would fly in interchange with their crews and their flight attendants and pilots between. Um, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Washington uh, subsonically, and then the British Airways crews and Air France would take over to Europe. So they did audacious, bold things. And the other thing they did is a lot of the equipment and the style and the, the way they built their terminals and their computer systems, they did a lot of this stuff in-house. So they were trendsetters on a marketing standpoint, on hub and spoke, but they were also very, very much... Um, very unique in their operations and for many, many years, profitable, uh, extremely profitable. So uh, it's an airline that that's why uh, its name kind of, I believe, still resonates today. Mm -hmm. Well, Chris, I imagine among some longtime Braniff employees that there is so many years later still a lot of passion like you show. This reunion was to celebrate the 95th anniversary of Braniff's founding, right? What did you find in terms of former employees' feelings 
about the airline? Well, gosh, I mean, it's uh, it's really incredible to me is that, you know, the really unique thing about airlines that instills loyalty, you know, in most companies and most businesses, people move from company to company. And, you know, you may spend 10 years, 20 years, but, you know, when you're with an airline, particularly if you're, you know, organized labor, you know, literally the frontline people who are doing the work, the pilots, the flight attendants, you know, because of seniority and reasons like that, people tend to stay at a company for their entire, often, unless something happens, like they quit or, you know, most people don't move between airlines if you're, quote, the, the frontline people. So your entire career, your self-concept, your friends, your family, that lasts your entire career. And so there's a lot of pride and there's a lot of love. There also a lot of, can be a lot of love and hate. But, um, and then people tend to, you know, and the thing about an airline is you come to work every day and you might fly a trip with a certain group of people and then you fly with a different group of people the next day. You don't have the same coworkers every day, but the company itself becomes this kind of connective tissue that's something we all share and everybody shares in common. And you have this massive extended family. And so when you go to this reunion, these reunions, and this isn't the first, I mean, Braniff, more than any airline I can think of, has what's called the Clip B. They have all these retirement societies and they have every uh, few years, these full day conferences and celebrations that bring people together. These aren't just sparsely attended reunions, but they feel like high school reunions. And even 40 years later, people are bawling and hugging and telling stories and there's a presentations going on stage and people behind you are whispering going, Oh, I haven't seen Jean in years. God, she looks so great. Or, you know, Oh, you know, it's like, she's now a rancher down in South Texas. So there's just so, so much pride and love. And, and then also there's so much tears. And when people start talking about the demise of Braniff, I mean, people 41 years later, are getting choked up about the about that end or saying we were the best and we were going to put on a show every day. And so I don't know. I mean, I've been to reunions before, but the fact that these bonds are still strong enough to attract people from all over the world to come together. And interestingly enough, Braniff, you know, as, is a going concern. It still is. And so uh, things like employee passes for flight benefits and various coverages and benefits that they once enjoyed, a lot of that stuff still exists. And so there's a company that still maintains a lot of that and brings value and revenue to their lives. And so this was a very, very moving and educational part. And I didn't work for Braniff, but just being there, I kind of felt like I was part of the extended family. And, and I think that's it's fascinating because I, I, I totally get what you're saying about Airlines in general. I've I've been to a bunch of airline reunions um, for for different carriers, and and I think that's true. What's fascinating about Braniff is is that it did die 41 years ago as an airline, and most of those people went to work somewhere else. So they may have had long careers at Southwest or United or American or Delta or or the local real estate company or or doing whatever, right? But they still have that loyalty to Braniff, even though they probably only worked for Braniff for a short period of time. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you're right. Uh, people that were there do fly for other carriers, but the way they describe it, you'd hear comments in the back like current carriers, they'll be like, boy, we just don't provide service like that. Or those really were the glory days. Boy, you know, it's like. Yeah, I've worked for X carrier. I've gone on, but there was nothing like that. And and people did work for Brana for thirty or forty years. I mean, a flight attendant who was sitting next to me, who is still flying, uh, you know, she had already worked for Brana. I couldn't believe it. I mean, she'd worked for Brana for ten years by that point, and now she's still flying. She was uh, in her upper upper seventies, and so. Um, and there were people there that, that that only worked for Brana for like two years. Like there was a woman on the other side who literally worked there from 1958 to 1960. And she was remarking how it was the most special time of her life. And the only reason she left, because as was at the time, you know, she was pregnant. And um, they all say the similar story. It's like, you know, I was just like some girl from the country one day on our farm. And the next day I'm in Singapore you know, with my Texas accent and my cowboy boots, and I'm representing America. And 
we're like, you know, you want to talk about, I mean, the feminist movement, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, the you know, they're talking about, you know, having to, where men in different cultures didn't ex- accept them and they were like determined, you know, we're like proud and, and they were, there was a lot of pride in like how they represented America. And it was just, that's the kind of thing that's really uh, uh, unique and special. Well, let's talk about the Braniff archives you saw. What's in an airline's archives? Well, the Braniff archives uh, is really something special and unique. What a neat story this is. The, the real brains behind this archive, and to some extent, the Braniff Foundation, there's two groups, Braniff International and then the Braniff Foundation. There's a guy named Ben Cass, and he's a former pilot, but he never flew for Braniff. He flew a lot of cargo and charter work. But he was a, you know, he came from a family of, uh, from the, who owned cattle ranches, and his father, I believe, was on the board of the Federal Reserve in Dallas. And he was a, he was like one of us. He was a true av geek and really loved the company. And his father, uh, in the early 80s, when Braniff filed that bankruptcy, he bought immense amount of the intellectual property and a lot of, the, of these assets, uh, like many parts of the corporate archives. That doesn't mean you got everything because they had to collect. Obviously, there's a lot of this stuff everywhere. And his family, you know, they've been able to, over the years, license the name at times uh, to different companies. And there's always been people who want to, you know, they're very particular about protecting the brand, but there's been a lot of companies and people who wanted to create a brand of airlines. And there was two and brand of two and three, and they had to license that name. And so they're, you know, it's like Pan Am uh, with the Pan Am uh, brand and the TWA Muse Hotel. I mean, there's a lot of people who value that intellectual property and want to do things with it. So there's a current concern company that maintains that. But, uh, you know, so this, this family, and in particular, this man, who was just a force of nature, him and his COO, partner Colin, uh, they together have basically created the archives and the archives is physically located in a number of different locations. Um, it's not all in one place, but it is exquisitely meticulously preserved. And what, what's in it? I mean, everything from every single legal document, FA file, HR document, uh, microfilms of every ad, all the films, press releases, photography, literally every financial report, every internal study. Then on the AvGeek side, it's like, here's a warehouse room just full of models, signage, the airport furniture, the original models of the Calder DC-8, the silverware, pieces from jet bridges. They've even began mocking up, uh, which was probably the highlight, uh, a reproduction of the 747 Braniff place, that first 747. They've almost created a mock-up of the first-class section up from, from, from the seats. I mean, their offices are literally de- decorated with the original t- Terminal of the Future Dallas Love Field furniture. So the amount of what's in there and how perfectly organized it is, is just mind-blowing. Now, from a public display standpoint, what they do with the archive, these guys are very technical, forward-thinking people. They've digitized somewhat, they say, 13 terabytes of data, photos, literally the entire collection. When I say, imagine a library of library racks and every there, every box with every ad, all this stuff uh, great matters of it has been digitized and they are going to be placing a lot of this online. Um, but what they do is on their website, brandfinternational.org, you can see a lot of this stuff, but it's also at various, not only these brand of conferences and brand of events, they're going to do the next brand of conference next year and the hundredth anniversary in five years, they trot a lot of this stuff out to those events. But if you go to the Future of Flight Museum in Dallas, you'll see a big brand display, which is their archive with all the wonderful uniforms. If you go to the Fort Worth Museum of Art, they have a uh, Art of Braniff uh, display there. And through and through the, at the Texas Historical Society, various places, they loan out the material. 
I have to say the piece of art um, that blew the thing that blew me away the most, of course, the 747 or seeing these the original hand painted Calder models was mind blowing. But I had no idea that they, the amount of artwork the, that the company purchased as a investment asset when they went to South America, they commissioned massive amounts of artwork that has nothing to do with. Uh, you know, with the airline, and yes, a lot of these were made into kind of like promotional signs you'd see at the airport and everything, but they own incredible pieces of art um, and sculpture that were in these countries. And they had to work in some cases 20 years to remove that that from the country uh, that they owned and commissioned because it's historic art. So they've got an insane immense art collection in their various warehouses and in, like as I said, at Fort Worth at the Museum of Art there on display. So this archive you know, beyond every model and every Avgi dream you could think of is if you intellectually want to get into like how the bankruptcy happened and you want to read the filings with the, the actual filings with the judicial court when they had to shut it down and the interpersonal memos and communications, this is the anatomy of an airline. Um, and, and I was shocked because uh, usually you walk into these things and even at major airlines, there's some of them are beautifully curated, but a lot of it's just in chaos. This is for these two guys, uh, particularly, uh, you know, the leader, Ben, this has been a full-time uh, passion for, and, bi and business, I should say, as well as a nonprofit foundation, you know, for many, many years. And so I was, uh, I was staggered by what I saw. I did not expect it to be um, to the level of preservation that it is. So fascinating, Chris. So how can people see some of this stuff if they're interested? Well, if you might, uh, that's a great question, Scott. I'm glad you thought to ask. Um, if I may <laughs> shamelessly plug my uh, website, I have what I call the, uh, the Webzeum of Commercial Aviation. So it's thearchive.net. It literally has all of what I talk about. I mean, photos from every major airport you consider around the world, timetables, route maps, cabin pictures, uh, and particularly for Braniff, you can just you can see the original brochures, as I said, the timetables, and uh, it's like an airline rabbit hole. So just uh, go there and uh, block some time out. It's the archive.net. So it's like an archive, but archive, A-I-R-C-H-I-V-E dot net. We're celebrating our 20th year, actually, and uh, we've just now relaunched it. And uh, it's pretty cool. And it's free. Thanks for sharing all that with us. And, and thanks for, for your wandering, uh, fascinating, uh, inquisitive looks at different corners of aviation. Um, always enjoy it, and I think uh, we all learn from it. Um, great to have you with us, and look forward to your next adventure. Thank you. It was great being on the show, guys. Thanks, Chris. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration provided by the archive.net, celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of Avgeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard the archive.net. Thanks again to Chris for some great insights into legendary Braniff. Braniff is one airline historical that I never got to fly, Scott. I did actually fly Braniff once from Boston to Dallas. You know, I was really struck at the speed at which the airline imploded, um, as as Chris described it. Um, the the rapid growth was amazing, um, but I didn't really, uh, you know, as young then, wasn't covering airlines then, uh, didn't really appreciate how rapidly such an established airline. Uh, just made made bad decisions for the new reality of deregulation, and man, it it was a it was a fast fast plunge. It sure was. Well, Scott, listeners are refilling the mailbag. Keep it going. Go to airlinesconfidential.com and scroll down to the questions and comments form. Joe from California asks about rumors regarding Southwest Airlines in the Bay Area. Hi, guys. 
like to show how important is Oakland to Southwest? What's the likelihood Southwest would cease operations out of Oakland? Well, Joe, I have no insight into Southwest planning, but my sense is that Oakland is quite important to Southwest and it's consistent with the kind of airport they've made work well in other big metro areas. And if they were going to pull out of anything in the Bay Area, I think it's more likely they'd pull out of San Francisco because there's more competition and higher costs there. I'm not saying they're doing that. I'm just saying if they shrunk in the Bay Area, they'd probably double down on Oakland. What do you think, Scott? I think that's right, Ben. Um, you know, they they pulled out of San Francisco once before, so I think people are always nervous about that. But numbers do show Oakland is one of the most important stations for Southwest on the West Coast. It's bigger than Los Angeles International for Southwest, and I can't imagine Southwest would leave Oakland. As of September 6th, Southwest had 119 departures a day from Oakland to 35 cities. The airline does that from only 11 gates, so it's running almost 11 flights a day from each gate. If anything, Southwest needs more real estate in Oakland. By contrast, Southwest had only 20 flights a day from San Francisco International to eight cities. That's in in the September 6th schedule. Southwest has seven gates at SFO, so only four flights a day from each gate compared to 11 at Oakland. And down the way at San Jose, Southwest has 108 flights in the current schedule to 27 cities from 18 gates. SFO is the weak link here. Another way to look at it is employees. Southwest had 178 employees at SFO on September 6th and 623 at San Jose. At Oakland, there are nearly 3,000 employees. That number is much higher because Oakland is a crew base for pilots and for flight attendants. Okay, Ben, another question. This one from Daniel from, guess what, Newark. He wants to know why dinner is so expensive at Newark International Airport. Just kidding. Actually, Daniel says, Scott and Ben, I love the show and look forward to it every week. Thank you so much for doing it. I'm hoping to land a communications role in commercial aviation, and I'm learning so much about the industry from your show. How about a segment on how to get into the industry one week, he asked parenthetically. Here's my question or series of questions. I've got a few flights out of Newark Airport coming up and was curious how the slot system works. There can only be 81 takeoffs or landings per hour, I believe, but what happens if there's a storm that postpones traffic for an hour or so? Can Newark have more than 81 to catch up? And why the reason for slots at Newark, JFK, and LaGuardia? Can those airports handle more traffic than the 233 slots they have per hour at the three airports combined? And can other slot-regulated airports across the country handle more traffic? If so, why not up the number of slots? Well, thank you, Daniel. Actually, you're using the word slot not exactly correctly. In the world, slot refer to a governmental right to land or take off. And in that sense, Newark has no slots, but JFK and LaGuardia do. What you're talking about is the rate of takeoffs and landings, which is a function of runways, airspace, and things like that. These days, it's also about air traffic controllers. Kennedy and LaGuardia are slot controlled, so you need that governmental right to land or take off at a certain time. Newark doesn't have that limit, but the FAA monitors schedules to make sure the airport doesn't get overcrowded. Chicago O'Hare 
LA and San Francisco are the exact same way. But the FAA does set a maximum arrival rate and a departure rate for every airport. If the number of expected arrivals gets above that, the FAA restricts takeoffs and imposes delays. If storms reduce the capacity, planes have to sit on the ground and wait. Planes need spacing so a landing jet can exit the runway before the next airplane lands. And controllers can only safely handle so many airplanes at the same time in each sector of airspace. So the FAA has traffic management controllers who make sure no runway and no airspace sector gets overloaded. Someday, technology may change the workload and improve airport operations so that there aren't so many delays and you could up the arrival and departure rate. As it is now, reduced visibility or non-standard winds can force a reduction in arrivals and cause a lot of delays at many airports. But technology can reduce those weather-related slowdowns. This is all just a great example of why we need more controllers and better technology. Even congested airports like Newark can have increased capacity if we get on it. And Daniel, to your specific question about what happens with those storms, and then you have a whole lot of airplanes that want to get to Newark after the storm has passed, the same rules apply. They meter them so that they don't get overloaded. And so it's first come, first serve in most cases. Airlines can give some flights higher priority and get those in. A flight with a lot of people on an international connection, for example, or a flight with some VIPs on board, they can get preferential treatment in the system. But the rest of us just have to wait until it's our turn. And that's why delayed flights will stretch late into the night. Scott, I guess there's just a lot of demand for those $78 burgers. <laughs> That's right. That's right. If you're going to get delayed, the 1911 Smokehouse is the place to do it. That's right. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks again to Chris Sloan. I hope all of you were as excited to hear about Braniff as I was. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.